let's get into the book of Acts, okay? Acts chapter 1, we, we left off last Sunday looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He told his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. Um, but he told them that before you go out into the world uh, to be his witnesses, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. And uh, the Lord said, wait for it. And the Holy Spirit, when he comes on you, he's going to give you power. He's going to give you power. And after making that promise, what did Jesus do? He ascended into heaven. And they were awestruck. You know, we read last week that they were, they were gazing up. And two angels appeared to the disciples who were watching Jesus ascend in the clouds. And the, the angel said to them, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? Uh, Jesus is going to return in the same manner in which he left. In other words, the angels were saying to the disciples, it's time to get going, guys. Jesus gave you your mission. It's time to go be witnesses. Now, before, uh, before we go too far ahead, I want to share something on a personal, just kind of a personal word to you guys uh, based off last Sunday's sermon. Um, I want to say this, God gave me a good wife, and one of the ways that she is good to me is that she helps point out and she helps me see things that I don't often see and I'm not aware of. Um, last week, she pointed out that she thought I could have shared some things in a better way at the end of our service last Sunday, and um, what she meant was, um, she really said, hey, Jason, at the end of the service, you kind of got a little bit direct about how... Uh, People can get caught up in the return of Christ and end times prophecy and the rapture and, um, you know, and that, that can keep us from living on mission. And she, she basically said, hey, that came across kind of accusatory to the church and um, you need to kind of watch your words there, Jason. And, uh, and uh, I've been, you know, thinking about that and praying about that this week. And I just wanted to let you guys know the Holy Spirit has put it on my heart. I agree with her um, that in some of our services last week, I think I was a little too harsh on that. And I, I look back on that and I'm like, why? Why was I so like ag aggressive on that? I think some of it comes from the fact of my upbringing where, you know, you, if you grow up in a, in a church where things are so end times focused that things kind of tend to get squirrely, um, you can react to that a little bit. Um, and so I think that's what was happening. I, I don't know anybody in our church. I want to make it clear. I don't know anybody in our church who gets so caught up in the end times that they don't live for the Lord and make disciples. Um, but more importantly, here's what the Lord has, has re really put on my heart as I prayed about that this past week. Um, I believe that when our hearts do get properly set on longing for the return of Christ and paying attention, I actually believe that compels us to live on mission. It moves us to share the gospel and to be zealous for the Lord. So I just want you guys to know, uh, I love you. I love our church. Um, obviously not a perfect guy. And, uh, I don't want to come across accusatory and having unfounded concerns about you guys. So I ask you to forgive my careless words and pray for me week in and week out that I will honor the Lord with the preaching of his word. Um, so today I'm gonna, it's going to be the nicest sermon you've ever heard. <laughs> it's just going to be all encouragement. Uh, let's, look, let's look at Acts 1 together, okay? Um, we're going to start in verse 12 today. And we're going to work our way down uh, to all the way down to verse 26, Lord willing, if we have time. Hopefully we have time. Um, we're going to make some personal applications along the way. And then, like I mentioned, we're going to end today's service uh, with a time of prayer, specifically over our decision as a church for elders and deacons, but also praying for those of you in this room who may be at a critical point of decision-making on your own and you're seeking God's will. And, and so here's what I hope 
you walk away from this service with today. I hope that if you're in the midst of making a big decision, I hope that you are refreshed in your heart to trust in our sovereign God. And when you trust in our sovereign God, that you will trust him by seeking him in his word and prayer and trusting the leadership of his Holy Spirit. All right. So here's where we're going today. Let's look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, then they, the disciples, right, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, right? That's the mountain where Jesus ascended into heaven. It's not even so much of a mountain. It's kind of more, it's a small little hill. Um, it, it's not that big, but, you know, it's near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, the scripture says. Now, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day's journey, what is that? Um, a Sabbath day's journey is really just an expression uh, for something that's a short distance away. Um, generally speaking, it was something that was less than 2,000 paces away. Uh, and that was important for the Jews, if you remember, because according to their Jewish law, they were not, um, they were not allowed to work on the Sabbath day. And so uh, part of the custom that they developed over time was that if you had to walk more than 2,000 steps, then it changed from walking to working. And uh, so, you know, don't go to 2,001 steps or, you know, you're a big sinner. But the point is, is that it just became an expression. If someplace was a short distance away, it was a, a Sabbath day's journey away. Well, the disciples were making the little short walk back to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And um, when they had entered, verse 13 says, verse 13 says, when they had entered, they went to the upper room. We're not exactly sure if that's the same upper room where they had the last supper. Um, but it could be. They went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Now, if you go back and look at this list of disciples, what you would see is that there's 11 listed here. Obviously not 12, all right, because we know that Judas uh, had betrayed Christ. But what do we know about these 11 disciples? I don't have time today to kind of go into them one by one and just, you know, share what we know about each one of them. But the one thing that I do want you to know about these disciples, and we've said this before, and if you're a student of the word, you know this, but these 11 disciples, these were ordinary men. They were regular guys. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Thomas, they were fishermen, right? Blue-collar fishermen. You, get, you have one guy, Matthew, who's also called Levi in the scriptures, and he's uh, a tax collector. He's a tax guy. Probably had more money than the rest of them, okay? But these are regular guys. Some of them were brothers with each other. Some of them are friends. Some of them were more wealthy. Most of them probably less wealthy. Some were younger. Some were older. Some of them were very zealous for the Lord. Some of them were doubters. These are the 11 men who are listed here, and they are ordinary men. But as we've said in the past, God tends to do extraordinary things with ordinary people, doesn't he? God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people. Sometimes I wonder, like, do you think, do you think Peter, do you think they just knew, like, when they followed Jesus, how Jesus was going to use them? You think Peter knew that he was going to preach the sermon on Pentecost and see 3,000 souls saved? You think that uh, Thomas was going to know that even though he was a doubter, that the Lord might use his story to help other believers through 2,000 years of church history who may doubt? 
think Matthew, the tax guy, understood when Jesus called him that he was eventually going to pen a letter that would end up being in Holy Scripture, right? Like, God does extraordinary things with ordinary people. And I want to remind you of that this morning as a word of encouragement to you because there's probably a room full of people in here who feel pretty ordinary. God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people whose hearts are open to him and what he wants. I hope your heart is open to him this morning. Well, these are the 11 apostles, and here's what they were doing in Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, and these with one accord, that means, that means with one mind or with one purpose, they were devoting themselves to what? You say it, prayer, right? Prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So Mary, the mother of Jesus is here. Jesus's brothers were here as well. If you read the book of Mark, um, chapter 13, it tells us that Jesus had four brothers. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And I think that it is, uh, it's great to see that his brothers are here praying with the rest of the apostles. Because if you remember in the gospel of Mark, it actually says that early on in Jesus's ministry, his family was kind of embarrassed of him. Jesus was preaching and kind of offending the crowd and firing up the crowd. And his, his brothers came to like remove him from that setting, right? Um, and yet here over time, what had they done? They had become persuaded to believe that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And here they're gathered with the apostles praying. And I love that this is their, their first instinct. They, they go back to Jerusalem as Jesus told them. They're obeying Jesus' commands. They get back into Jerusalem. And it's like their default mindset, their, their basic instinct here is to do what? It's to pray. It wasn't to sit around and debate or discuss or to have some dialogue or whatever. Their natural impulse as disciples seemed to be to go and pray. And they did it in one accord, unified, with one mind. They had a good true unified prayer meeting going on here. And I just want to reiterate to you what I've said over the past really couple months as a church, like this call to prayer, to being a man of prayer, to guiding us to be a church of prayer. This is just something I know the Lord is growing us in. I know he wants to grow us to be a praying church, that it's kind of just our natural impulse when issues and things arise. And and before we want to go out and do ministry amongst the world, that it just becomes our natural default to be a people of prayer. Again, that's part of why we're going to pray at the end of our service today. But the next verse tells us, um, verse 15 tells us that there were 120 of them praying in this way. Look at verse 15. Verse uh, 15 says, um, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. And he said some words to them. And as I was studying this past week, I just thought, how interesting, you guys. The number 120 stood out to me. And here's why. Because 120 was the size of the whole church then. You with me on this? This is the believing community in Jesus Christ. They're all together here in one place. How many of them are there? 120. Guys, we have probably close to that many people in this service today. Our other services are going to have probably have more than that. And how many believers are there gathered around the world today, right? Countless number of believers that are going to be gathered. And here's the truth that stood out to me. Guys, God doesn't need big numbers to change the world, does he? God doesn't need big numbers. He can do something special with 11 
Ordinary men. He can do something with 120. He can do something special with 120 who are gathered in one accord to pray to his name. He can do something with any number of people who are committed to following his cause and wanting to do so in the power of the Holy Spirit through prayer. Guys, what would the Lord do in our church if the several hundred of us really devoted ourselves to prayer, saying, Lord, we want to live and walk and move in the power of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, meet with us. Empower us. Fill us to do your will. What could the Lord do? The church only had 120 people in it at this point. God did some things. We're going to read about those in the rest of the book of Acts. So in this company of 120 people, Peter begins to speak. Verse 16 Verse 16, Peter says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us, and he was allotted his share in this ministry. So there's, again, a lot that can be said here, but one thing that as you just read the scriptures and you just try to put yourself in the mind of what was going on in the first century at that time, it amazes me that Peter had this kind of scriptural knowledge. Um, He talks about how the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through David concerning Judas. So get that. What Peter's doing here is he's connecting the dots between the life of Judas and the prophets of old and the prophecies that were eventually fulfilled through Judas and the disciples, right? This amazes me because what was Peter, right? Peter was a common, everyday fisherman before he followed Jesus, Later in the book of Acts, the crowds are going to refer to Peter and the other apostles as what? Unlearned men. Ignorant men, it actually says. Unlearned and ignorant men. So you wouldn't think that Peter would have this kind of theological framework to connect all these dots. How did this all come together? Here's how. It came together, I believe, wholeheartedly through Jesus. Because remember what happened, you know, remember how Luke and Acts are together, right? They're they're. Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. Well, remember at the end of Luke chapter 24, the last chapter of the gospel of Luke, Jesus rises from death. The disciples are gathered together in a room and Jesus just appears to them in Luke 24. And it says in Luke 24 that he opened their minds so that they may understand the scriptures. Remember this? Jesus opened Peter and the, and the other apostles' minds, the other disciples. On top of that, what did we learn last week in the very beginning of Acts chapter 1? At the beginning of Acts chapter 1, we learned that after his resurrection, Jesus didn't just appear to his disciples, but he stayed with them for 40 days. And what did he do during those 40 days? It says that he taught them day by day about the kingdom of God. Right? Talk about the best Bible study ever. You know what I'm saying? 40 days straight with Jesus unveiling to you the the truths of scripture and the truths about the kingdom of God. You know, so Peter shares, you know, now what he knows from scripture that I believe he learned from Jesus. And part of what he shared with them was how Judas fulfilled uh, some of these Old Testament prophecies. But uh, before he goes on to talk about the specifics of those Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Judas's life, he actually takes this little parenthetical break to write some of the details about Judas's death, which are kind of gross. We're going to read these here in verse 18 and 19. So uh, Luke tells us here, um, you know, remember he's writing to Theophilus and he's giving an account of all these things that happened. So 
Luke writes a little parenthetical statement about Judas. And here's what he says. Now this man, talking about Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open into the middle and uh, all his bowels gushed out. Holy Spirit inspired words right there, right? And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. That verse isn't descriptive at all, is it? Right, his bowels gushed forth, right? Like, wow, okay. Um, I, uh, I just, sometimes, you know, I just... I think about Peter, right? And, you know, maybe he's kind of talking about Judas. Maybe he's sharing these things. Peter's a blue-collar guy, you know? He's just, yeah, you know, his guts came out. You know, it's just normal to a fisherman, right? I told my wife, Rachel, last night, we're sitting at the dinner table. I said, babe, I got to be, I got you need to be ready. I'm going to have to talk about something that's a little gross. And and she was like, really? Like what? And I said, we're going to have to talk about how Judas's guts spilled out. And my wife was like, oh, really? Ooh. (laughs) I was like, you are such a nurse, right? Like, it was just totally her. So, um, so you get this big description here and I, I want to just take a moment and address something that I've heard over the years. Like some people will say, Hey, wait, this is a contradiction in scripture. Maybe it seems like one because they'll say, wait, Matthew chapter 27 says that after Judas uh, betrayed Christ, he went out and he hung himself And that's how he died. But Acts says here that, you know, he fell down a hill and he burst open. So uh, what's the deal here? How do we reconcile this? And church tradition and teaching through the years have basically said, hey, this this is probably how this went down. Imagine Judas, he has his remorse and his regret. He goes and he, he hangs himself on a tree, right? That's, that's, has a branch over a hill. Eventually it's kind of nasty. The rope broke or, or his body started decaying, right? And he just fell down this cliff and hits rocks and his, his body bursts open. And Matthew tells us how he actually died by hanging. And Acts tells us what happened like afterwards, like the combustion of his body. So, um, so we have all these details and I hope you can still enjoy your lunch today. But why is this, why is this in here? Why this emphasis on Judas and the awful nature of his demise, right? Guys, uh, I believe that the Lord, Holy Spirit-inspired words, I believe that the Lord is trying to get our attention so that we don't end up like Judas, okay? Judas hung out with Jesus. Judas saw the ministry of Jesus. He walked with Jesus day by day. He was connected in community with the other disciples. He took part in the Lord's Supper. He actually dipped his bread into Jesus's cup. He, he was close enough to Jesus that he came up to Jesus and kissed him on the cheek. He had all the outward signs of love for Christ, but what was he on the inside? On the inside, he was full of wickedness. He was full of wickedness. Matthew 26, verse 14 and 15 say that Judas, uh, he asks uh, some of the religious leaders, he says, what will you give me if I hand Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. In other words, Judas betrayed the Lord for money. One who was in the Christian community, who was once walking with Jesus, he betrayed the Lord Jesus for money, which kind of answers a question. Like Jesus speaks pretty strongly about the dangers of money all through the gospels, doesn't he? The love of money, the danger of money. Don't get caught up in riches. 
What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? You know, right? Jesus knew that this was going to happen to Judas, right? So what's the, the takeaway for us here, guys, is let's not have blinders on our eyes and just think, like, that could never happen to me. Guys, it's easy that we could get so caught up in worldly material possessions and money that we could totally betray our faith, walk away from the Lord, and we can end up having a major life of regret, shipwreck our faith. Judas had regrets. When you read the gospel account of Matthew, Judas had regrets. He regretted what he had done, and he later changed his mind, and he tried to give all the money back. But the temple leaders didn't want the money back, so Judas just threw the money on the ground, and he went out and killed himself. And I want you to know this. like The scripture teaches that there's two types of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, it, there's sorrow, there's tears, there's sadness. But godly sorrow, it may include those things, sadness and tears and emotions, but you know what godly sorrow does? Godly sorrow will lead you back to God. There are a lot of people in this world who die with sadness and regrets. Even sadness and regret from the things they've done against God. But godly sorrow will lead you to repentance and you'll come back to the Lord and his grace will be sufficient for you. Don't die like Judas. Repent and return to the Lord Jesus Christ. So after this little parenthetical graphic break about Judas, we get back to Peter and Peter is talking about how Judas fulfilled these prophecies, right? So pick up in verse 20. Um, again, it's, it's written in the book of Psalms. Peter says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And, there's an, and then he says, and also let another take his office. So what, what do we have here? Peter is quoting from two different Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And in both of those Judas fulfilled these as really uh, prophecies, right? That you read Psalm 69, you'll see that um, this is kind of a, a prayer where David is praying uh, about, Lord, deliver me from my enemies, those who are trying to put me to death. Remove their name from the book of life, David prays in Psalm 69. And that's exactly what ended up happening to Judas. He was no longer in the land of the living. In Psalm 109, um, Again, David is saying, like, you know, these people who were supposed to be at my side, officers at my side, they're, they're, they're not here. They're turning against me. So, Lord, raise up somebody else who can do this job, who can, who can stand alongside me in my office. Well, what happened with Judas? He didn't fulfill faithfully the office that in which he held. And so someone needed to replace him. Those are the prophecies from Psalm 69 and 109. And so Peter goes on to say in verse 21, some of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the end of the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Right? So they're looking to identify one person who is now going to go out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and they're going to testify about Jesus Christ who died and rose again. And they're looking for that. Now, why did they need to replace Judas? Wasn't, wouldn't 11 have just been fine, you know? Why did they need to replace Judas? Why did there need to be a 12th? I believe that the Lord gives us an answer when we remember the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, 
Jesus is teaching his disciples. Again, this is before you know, anything happened with, with Judas' betrayal and Jesus' death and resurrection. But Jesus is teaching them about his eternal kingdom. And he says to them in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I believe that this is a prophecy of Jesus about his, uh, what's gonna, it's gonna be like when he establishes eternal kingdom. At some point, there's gonna be 12 thrones that need to be seated on, to be sat on and filled with leaders. And now Judas was gone, so the 12th throne needed to be filled. So I believe that Peter was recalling this prophecy about the kingdom of God that Jesus had been teaching him during this time. And uh, that's what's motivating him to um, really identify who the Lord has to fill that 12th spot. And so here's what they did. Verse 23 says, And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And we don't know much about these guys. Uh, Joseph slash Barsabbas slash Justice. Uh, we literally don't know anything about him. There's nothing else mentioned about him in Scripture or in church history. Matthias, there's nothing else mentioned about him in scripture, but one of the early church fathers named Eusebius tells us that Matthias was one of the 70 that Jesus had sent out to uh, preach the gospel of the kingdom, you know, earlier in his ministry. Other church historians tell us that perhaps Matthias uh, took the gospel to the um, land of Ethiopia. But these are, these are two qualified men who were with Jesus from the beginning, from his baptism all the way through his resurrection and now they, they have to choose one. They have to choose one of these men. Well, how do you make that choice? How do you make that decision? Look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, and they prayed. They prayed. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So this is a big decision, and the first thing that they did was pray, right? Like this is a, a theme going on here with the apostles, natural default towards prayer. And in their prayer, what did they do? They acknowledged God's sovereignty. Lord, show us whom you've chosen, right? They, did, they understood like, Lord, we don't even want this to be our decision. We just want you to show us who you chose. So Lord, show us. They recognized that God had already made a choice. They wanted to follow God's will. So how do you follow God's will, lining up with what he wants? You gotta pray. So they prayed. That was the first step they took. And now they took the next one. The verse 26 says, and they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They cast lots. What's casting lots? Jewish tradition teaches us that this had something to do with rocks and somehow identifying different options on rocks and either throwing them or shaking them in a cup until one popped out and they had different ways to identify okay well whichever rock went the closest to the line or whatever rock popped out first you know that's considered to be God's will so for us today what would we call this we would call this you know rolling the dice or flipping a coin right it was just you know uh in fact in our modern day vernacular what we still we still use words like uh playing the lottery or the lotto. It's just, it's just a way to make a decision that, you know, removes human bias. I'm talking with a brother in our church a couple weeks ago who told me a, a true story about his previous church 
who uh, he was a deacon there, and um, if there was a tie in the, the votes among the deacons, that one of the elders would come and he would take a piece of paper and put it in a hymnal, and then they would take these uh, men and these, this assortment of hymnals to a room, and uh, the uh, deacons would have to each choose a hymnal, and whichever hymnal had the piece of paper in it, that was God's way of revealing to them, that deacon is aligned with my will, okay? And that's how they made decisions. True story. Now, before you think this is crazy or something ungodly, I want you to know this. Casting lots, you guys, is it's something that it's not just talked about in Scripture. The soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garments during his crucifixion. That can kind of put us uh, a bad view of casting lots in our minds. But in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel were told to cast lots so that they can understand God's will for how to divide up their land. In the book of Numbers and First Chronicles, God himself tells people to cast lots in order for certain decisions. Um, so we can't just assume that this is a, like a negative sinful thing. In fact, Proverbs 16 verse 33 says this, the, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from who? The Lord. So the disciples, what do they do? They, they cast lots to make this decision. And this, uh, this isn't them being flippant about their decision. This is them expressing what they just prayed. Lord, we believe in your sovereignty. You've made a choice. It's like saying, Lord, we know that you're in control of all things, even the roll of the dice, even the casting of lots. So, so we trust you with this decision. And the truth is, guys, our God is sovereign, and he is sovereign even over the smallest things like the casting of lots or the rolling of the dice. And the Lord was sovereign over the lot falling to Matthias. Now, maybe that helps you understand a little bit about what was going on there. Another thing, though, that I also want you to understand is this. Just because this is the decision that, this is the way that the disciples made this decision then, it doesn't necessarily mean this is the way that we are to make our decisions now. It's kind of intriguing, right, when you hear about this casting of the lot stuff to say, oh, okay, I got a hard decision to make. I'll just, I'll just roll the dice or flip a coin or cast lots. And while I personally don't think there's anything sinful at all about casting lots, if it was sinful, God wouldn't have commanded his people to do it in Scripture. While I don't think it's sinful at all, I also don't think it should be the norm for us, and I, and I want to explain to you why. I don't think it's sinful, like I mentioned, because... A, God commanded it in the Old Testament, and B, it's not forbidden in the New Testament. But I don't think it should be the norm for us, and here's why. My reasoning is because we now have the Holy Spirit. You guys tracking with me? The disciples at this point in Acts chapter 1, they did not yet have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit didn't come on them until Acts 2, Okay? The Holy Spirit would come on them in Acts 2. And part of the role of the Holy Spirit in dwelling us is to do what? To lead us into all truth. And I believe that this is exactly what the Lord would do for us and through us when we seek his will through prayer and scripture. So I think that needs to be our starting point. Lord, we've looked at your word. We've tried to understand what your word has said, just like the disciples did here. Lord, we've pray we're praying to you. Asking you, you've already made a decision, you already have your way, we want to align with you. Now, Lord, show us your will. And while the casting of lots might have been the old covenant way of doing it, I believe 
that this is part of why the, God has given us the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. So this leads us to an important part about Bible study, and I'll wrap up my time here today by just touching on this and then closing out. Guys, when you read the Bible, you must learn to discern, am I reading a descriptive text or a prescriptive text? And this becomes really important. Here's the difference between the the two. We're gonna put this on the screen for you. Descriptive text, they tell you what was done. Prescriptive text, tell you what to do. Descriptive text, tell you how it was. Prescriptive text, tell you how it should be. Descriptive text, just give you history. Prescriptive text, give you instruction. So in Acts chapter one, we have a descriptive text. The, the, the lot was cast, it fell to Messiah, and he was a Matthias, and he was numbered among them. That's a description. But the prescription, right, where was that he had to have been with the Lord from time of his baptism till his resurrection. When we get to the New Testament, there's no prescription telling us to cast lots to identify church leaders. Um, there are prescriptions telling us, here's what you look for in your leader. Men who are above reproach, men who are husband of one wife, men who are sober-minded. Those things are prescriptions. And so the prescription there is to choose a leader who meets certain criteria. And I believe now we are wise to pray and trust the Holy Spirit to reveal to us who actually meet those criteria. This is going to be really important as we work through the book of Acts. Acts is, is, is a really unique book. Acts 1 we have the description of the casting of lots. Acts 2, we have the description of the mighty rushing wind and the tongues of fire you know, falling on, on the disciples. Acts 3 through 5, we describe Peter and, and some of the other disciples you know, uh, doing miracles and healings. And I just want to make it clear, just because these are descriptions doesn't mean we treat them as prescriptions. All right, so we must learn to read and understand the scriptures properly, especially as we go through the book of Acts and the sensitive nature of this book because it was such a transitional period in church history. There's a lot more that can be said here, and we will say a lot more about it in the coming weeks. But for today, I'm going to wrap up my time by just giving us three quick takeaways. Three takeaways for us from today's study. The first one is this. Guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, trust that God does extraordinary things with ordinary people. Remember that God can do extraordinary things with ordinary people, ordinary people like you and like me. If he can impact the world through the disciples, he can impact the world through us. Do we believe it? Do we believe it, really? This is a step of faith, saying, Lord, I believe you can use me. I'm an ordinary person. Second takeaway for us, everybody in this room, turn to Jesus and don't die like Judas. Turn to Jesus. Don't die like Judas. Judas turned away from Jesus for money. You and I are going to be tempted to do the same. If it wasn't possible for believers to be caught up in the traps of worldly possessions, Jesus wouldn't have taught about it. He wouldn't have given us the parable of the sower and the seed and how some seed grows for a while, but then it gets choked out by the cares and the affairs of the world and money and possessions. Guys, don't get so caught up in money and possessions and riches that we miss Jesus. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and come back to Christ and he will forgive you. His blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And number three, big takeaway for us. When big decisions come, start with scripture and prayer and trust the Holy Spirit to lead you from there. When big decisions come, start with scripture and prayer 
and trust the Holy Spirit to lead you from there. We're in a little bit of a different situation than the apostles were in Acts 1. We now have the 66 books of scripture. They didn't have all this during that time. We now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us to lead us to all truth. They didn't have that. So what do we do when we have big decisions to make? Maybe some of you right now have a big decision to make. Start with scripture. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Trust the Holy Spirit to lead you from there. Guys, we're about to make some big decisions as a church. Like the apostles, we have to recognize new church leaders. We're about to recognize new elders and deacons in our church. I don't know about you, but I I want to recognize those who in his sovereignty, the God who knows the hearts of all men, I want to recognize those who he's already called into this role. We identify them by trusting the Holy Spirit and the teaching of scripture and prayer. This isn't just writing out a job description, finding some good-hearted guys who are willing to do the work. Okay, that's, that's not it. We want to see who God has laid out. So, seek the scriptures, pray, trust the Holy Spirit, and I believe the Lord is going to lead us along. Um, Glenn, are you in here? Yes, Glenn's right there. Glenn is going to come. Glenn's one of our deacons, and he's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer specifically over this uh, church leadership nomination and recognition process. And as Glenn prays out loud, I would love for each of us to join in praying in our hearts as well. Good morning, UBC family. Thank you for having me. And uh, thankful for a a pastor that's so uh, faithful to God's word and and humble before us. We will eschew our normal here, near, and everywhere prayer structure, uh, given the need to to really pray over the next steps of the church with regards to uh, elders and deacons and and those making personal decisions in the forthcoming days and weeks. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity always to come before the throne of grace. Thank you that this church is focused on your word and goes through it expositorily. Pray that you would bless our pastors and leaders and continue to be with their families. And Lord, may we as a body meditate heavily on 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5, this week in particular, as we consider the qualifications for elders and deacons. Lord, may you raise up in our midst uh, those that are qualified to serve those that care deeply about the structure of this church as well as as its members, and that uh, these men would be uh, from you. I pray that you would give us, uh, through your word, through preaching, through fellowship, many uh, points of guidance in that. May it not be a popularity contest, Lord, but may it be a finding of, of your people. And Father, I also raise up anyone in this room and anyone listening that's making a big personal decision in the forthcoming days and weeks, Lord, that you would reveal your will, that you would uh, express it in your word uh, through godly uh, discipleship, through fellowship, Lord, reveal it. And thank you for all of those that seek you first and foremost. It's in your name.